to I Could Make That, a podcast about creativity. Uh, I am your host, Ashley Sellers. I'm your host, Ann Kilzer. And today we are going to be talking about color theory, both the science of color theory and how you can apply this science to your art. Yeah, this is a big subject. I mean, people do, you know, master's degrees. I don't know. People do advanced graduate work in color theory. So I think we're just going to scratch the surface, but it's a super cool topic. And I'm really excited about today's podcast. And I think that if um, people find some value in what we're talking about today, we could even, there's so much on color theory, we could do multiple episodes. Um, I think maybe we could start by just, we're going to be going over a lot of uh, definitions just as we uh, talk. So let's get some basic definitions out of the way, because we're going to be talking about the color wheel. Um, So, Anne, do you want to do the honors and talk about some of the definitions we find within a color wheel? Yeah. Let me just start talking about, um, I guess, primary colors. So we learn about this when you take a basic art class. A lot of times we learn about primaries as red and yellow and blue, but there's actually a lot more depth there. So when you look into the science, there's actually two systems of primaries. There's what's called the additive system, which is using light. Um, let me back up a second and just say like color, this, this blew my mind when I was five years old. I remember hearing about this on like Sesame Street and getting really, really upset about it because it's hard to learn that the world isn't what you perceive as a five-year-old. So when I first learned that color was a perception of our eyes, of light reflecting off of objects, and it wasn't an intrinsic value of that object, it was light, which is, I'm trying to remember high school physics, I guess a wave and a particle, and I don't know, this interesting phenomenon that goes into objects and some of the color is absorbed, and what isn't absorbed is reflected. And so if I see something that's red, it's because it's absorbing the other colors of the the visible spectrum and reflecting that red into my eye. And my eye has, let's see, rods and cones. So the rods are detect um, like darks and lights and are good for night vision. And then the, the cones detect color. And we have, we have cones that detect um, red, green, and blue. So the additive system is based off of this light. And you can combine red, green, and blue to create white or to create different colors in the electromagnetic spectrum. And that's what we pick up. Now, when we're mixing pigments, we use the subtractive system because pigments, um, I guess they're absorbing certain colors and reflecting other ones. And so traditionally painters would use red, yellow, and blue. And you can mix a lot of colors with that. However, um, it's a little more accurate to use what, what printmakers use. This is going to be my printmaker um, tally, ego tally. <laughs> but printmakers use a system called CMYK, and it stands for cyan, magenta, yellow, and key, or sometimes black that they take the key in there. It can be the key image because it's hard to mix black from those. And basically, what I was just reading this really awesome color theory article on Cora, and it's the inverse of the red green uh red green blue primaries when you look at the opposites on the color wheel you get um cmy cyan magenta and yellow and you can mix those you know if you look at the way modern things are printed like a magazine or a newspaper they're using cmyk 
Um, and yeah, it's just, so that's like a super high level of the different color systems. Um, there's other definitions of, you know, like saturation as like how much pigment is actually, or color is actually showing there. Or um, one of the things I thought was interesting when I was early in art school was um, that black, gray, and white are not really colors, they're values. So if someone, somebody, your goth friend says, uh, my favorite color is black, it's like, well, it's your favorite value. <laughs> Maybe they don't like color, I'm, I'm generalizing, but yeah, it's just interesting. There's a lot of neat definitions and I think we can go into more detail on some of the blog posts or resources if you really wanna dive deep into this. Do you have anything to add? So going back to the subtractive system, um, this is a really hard concept to wrap your brain around sometimes. One of the easiest ways uh, to remember, at least this is how I do it, um, think of the subtractive system as um, how uh, colors get layered on a white background. Every time um, a CMYK printer adds a layer of color, it's uh, hiding the white background. So yes. less light is being reflected off of that background. Basically, the light is being absorbed by the color that the printer is putting down, which means it's subtracting color from your vision. Yeah, that's Perfect. how I remember. It. Thanks for thanks for bringing up that point. That's super important because yeah, you're yeah you're subtracting from white, and the others the additive system you're adding to get white. So if you were like a theater lighter or something, you could mix colors to to get white. It's super interesting. Again, we're just scratching the surface, and I just think it's a really cool area. Um, and I've been actually doing some, painting some color wheels because I've been exploring watercolor recently and it's just a super helpful exercise to try and paint the color wheel where you, you know, you have, you start with a, a circle and you paint your red, yellow, blue on it and then you mix and kind of go around. We'll, we'll have examples. I mean, this is an abstract concept to talk about on an audio media, but it's cool. We'll make it work. <laughs> I really love making color wheels. I um, think that it's a really good way. We were talking about overcoming creative blocks last week. Yeah. I think it's a really good way to um, get acquainted with your art supplies, discover uh, your, I think a lot of artists have their own unique color palette or a few different color palettes that they, um, you know, everybody's heard of like um, Van Gogh's blue period and things like that. Um, everybody kind of has their own color palette. And I think exploring color wheels and color charts is a really good way to get acquainted with your personal style and um, get to know your art supplies.
So we just went over the additive system and the subtractive system, but these are not the only two color systems. Um, everybody will probably know about Pantone from their color of the year declarations. Uh, this is actually its own color system. Um, I was looking up Pantone's wiki earlier, and the basic story is that they began as a commercial printing company in New York in the 50s, and by the 1960s, the head of their inking and printing division bought out the rest of the company's assets, their technological assets, and they renamed the advertising company to Pantone. They own what's called the Pantone Matching System, also called, and my inner 13-year-old is giggling over this, PMS. <laughs> uh, oh, <man. laughs> which is defined by Wikipedia as, as basically a proprietary color space. It's um, a system of organized and standardized colors that um, most industries use from like printing fabric and um, actual like printing ink and um, things like that. And it's a system of coordinating colors um, because computer monitors and uh, distance and things like that can make it really difficult to standardize uh, colors across industry. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Pantone because I know it has a lot of notoriety in popular culture and though I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of Pantone to be honest um there's a couple of reasons for that one is as an artist and a printmaker I am mixing my own colors and I don't really need to care about proprietary color systems that tend to be honestly fairly expensive now I understand why something like this needs to exist in the graphic design world you know, like my former employer had a stack of Pantone cards for their the color scheme for their branding. And, you know, that would be helpful to have the swatch set in different offices so you can understand this orange needs to be this orange here and this needs to be the same. And you can't agree on that on the Internet because of the difference of the way computer monitors display color. Computer monitors vary uh, significantly in their color display and they can't display the full visible spectrum. Like there's certain colors... One of my favorite colors is actually really hard to view on a computer screen, and it's this dark, dark turquoise, turquoise blue-green, and it just looks terrible on a computer monitor. <laughs> That's so, bad. I think I know what color you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's the color of, like, a green tourmaline stone. It's so beautiful, okay. but it's, you know... Anyway, um, I can talk more about my favorite color later. There's an interesting story behind it. Uh, but yeah, so Pantone gets a lot of naming. But, and I, yeah, for graphic designers, use your tool. It's, it's a system that works. But for artists, I find Pantone to be an overmarketed, I don't know, capitalist thing that just, it's not really necessary for artists that aren't trying to produce like large scale printed things. It's just, yeah, there's so much more outside of it. So I just wanted to talk about it because it's such a thing in popular culture. Really, if you really want to understand color, mix your own. You're just gonna you're gonna learn so much, and you're gonna have such fun and joy, and you'll understand color in such a deeper way than adopting other people's color systems. Yeah, I mean, it's basically it's it's like going into a um, you know a wall and home decor paint store and looking at their swatches. Like if you look at the Pantone site, it is super commercial, like I guess the color of 2017 is greenery, which is kind of a uh, very lightly muted, uh, like sap, sapling green. And I'm super confused because they have these like uh, recommended color pairings. And one of them is called the analogous color pairing. And it's like, it's not even analogous. It's, um, 
green and then it goes to purple and then like a light orchid and then a peach and then a um, daffodil yellow and then like lilac and mauve. These are not analogous colors. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they study a lot of trends in fashion and and there are interesting things that came out, but I, you know, I I was on board with emerald. I was on board with that purpley violet, that really bright one. I love that color. Oh, radiant orchid. Yeah. Radiant orchid was awesome. I think it was I'm embarrassed that I know that. 2015, they came out with this color called Marsala, which just looked like the color of old chili. And it was really just a bummer. It was kind of this red-brown that was just like, <laughs> nah. And then 2016 was the pink and blue. Rose quartz and serenity. I'm looking at the website Yeah, right I think now. <laughs> they were trying to combine it with like complex modern views on gender and things, which is definitely an important talking point uh, that we're not going to discuss here. I think you're giving here, them but... so much credit. Are, I... Is that true? I'll, I'll have to find a source on that. I'll have to find a source on that. But I honestly thought there was some discussion of Pantone and um, complex gender analysis, but it was just kind of packaged. In I doubt. Bullshit. Yeah, I don't know if they were thinking about that when they chose these colors, but I know that the rest of us were. <laughs> oh, yeah. Here, here. Okay. Like from Pantone Color of the Year 2016 blog and um, Rose Quartz and Serenity. Here's the press release. A softer take on color uh, for 2016. For the first time, the blending of two shades, Rose Quartz and Serenity, are chosen. Blah, blah, blah. Um, where's the part of In many parts of the world, we are experiencing a gender blur as it relates to fashion, which has turned impact color trends through all other areas of design. This more unilateral approach to color is coinciding with societal movements towards gender equality and fluidity. The consumer's increased comfort with using color as a form of expression a generation that has less concern about being typecast or judged and open exchange of digital information that has opened our eyes to different approaches of color usage. So on a, a very, I guess, cynical look, it's kind of a baby blue mixed with a baby pink. Uh, but I don't know, Serenade is more of a periwinkle to my eye. So it's an interesting take. Oh, I, I, and I want to make sure, like, I don't in mean, any way mean to disparage you know gender fluid or trans people i'm definitely in supportive of those things it's just sometimes it's interesting when large corporations take stances on diversity and i'm i always wonder how much of that is sincere and trying to move the world forward and some of how much is an opportunity for marketing it's kind of a mixed bag it's sad that we have to be cynical about these things but i do think as um as corporations step into Um, and start engaging with uh, cultural, uh, social progression. You do have to sometimes doubt the sincerity and the earnestness of these proclamations. When we were talking about Pantone's website and the analogous colors, um, I think most people who are listening, well, a lot of people will will probably know um, the color schemes um, that you can get out of the color wheel, but some people won't. So I just wanted to go back to that and point out that, yeah, analogous color is, um, it is a a color scheme that you can use where you are using colors that are adjacent to one another on the color wheel. So when I was pointing that out, like obviously uh, green and purple are not next to each other on the color wheel. So those are not analogous colors. Um, there are other color schemes out there. Like, um, I think everybody's probably, um, used to complementary colors, uh, colors that are opposite one another on the color wheel, like the Christmassy red and green. And then there is blue and orange, which I think has been getting a lot of press recently because of all of the movies using blue filter and, 
uh, using um, orange to really make um, people pop off the screen. Um, then there is um, there's tetratic colors where you're using a color scheme um, using four colors and you're using the complementary pairs. So you could use, for example, blue and orange and purple and yellow in the same piece. And that would be a tetratic color scheme. Uh, there's also a triadic color, which is usually using the three colors equally spaced around the color wheel. Um, so this will give you like something that's really um, vibrant and uh, bright and has the colors kind of popping, but it's not as, there's not as much contrast there as there would be with the complementary color scheme. And I think that usually triadic colors will use um, uh, either like the three secondaries or the three primaries. Um, so that's, we're about to start talking about the primaries. So I wanted to bring that up too. You're learning the split primary system right now, aren't you? For yeah, watercolor? I am, which is, I've been taking some craftsy courses and one is on watercolor. I'll post the link. It's by a, a woman named Kateri Ewing. And, you know, I've always been kind of crappy at watercolor. Like I just, it was a hard medium. It seemed like you'd get these great colors and then you'd mix them and you'd get this kind of purpley brown, what my high school art teacher would call yuck. And so, <laughs> but seriously, if you mix a bunch of colors, you get, mm -hmm. he, he wasn't trying to disparage any particular student. Yeah. He was trying to say <laughs> that there's a way to mix color where you get a bright color. And then if you mix them all together, you get this kind of purpley brown and it's not really usable. Nobody was using it. So, um, it's funny when you do it on accident, it's yuck. When you do it on purpose, it's a beautiful, complex gray. Oh yeah, definitely. And we can use <laughs> complex grays in a bit. But anyway, so this class is talking about um, the split primary system, which I guess bases off the CMY system. So instead of your red, yellow, blue, you have two of each. You have a warm yellow and a cool yellow. And if you have um, a warm red, like kind of a red orange and a cool red, that's a little more of a magenta. And for your blues, you have a reddish blue and you have a greenish blue and you can use those. You can mix the, the two together to get like a, a middle of the road blue, mix your reddish and, and um, greenish and they come to a blue and you can mix your warm and cool yellow and get a middle yellow. And then you can mix, you know, the, the warm red with the warm yellow and get a really nice oranges. And if you start mixing like the cool red with the um, warm yellow. It's it's a little more dull, but that can be an intentional choice because if you're painting something with less saturation. But it's a really cool system that allows you to get these full colors. And what I've been doing the last few weeks is just taking some time every day and painting, mixing these colors, painting color wheels, really working through what happens when you blend these. And you can blend most colors with six. I got this really awesome set from Daniel Smith off of Amazon that has the split primary system it was like thirty dollars and has a little tube of each one and it goes a long way and it's really cool that it's like you don't need to pay a fortune to get into watercolor paints you can just get a really simple system and mix them all but practicing really helps you understand your your tools yeah i love making color wheels i think we we talked a little bit earlier about how um how it can kind of help you develop your sense of style and it helps you get to know your colors. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like when you said, um, you can 
makes a warm and a cool and it might be different from mixing a warm and a warm or a cool and a cool. Uh, you can customize your own palettes in this way and it can be an intentional choice. And then you carry that into your art. One of the points that I wanted to come back to is you were talking about how uh, you thought watercolor was really difficult when you first started. And I had the same experience when I first began learning watercolor, but I think my experience may have been different because of the supplies that I was using. When I first oh, started- absolutely. Yeah, I picked up a pack of student grade paints from um, a chain store. I don't want to give them any buzz marketing, so we're just gonna call them Nigels. I spent so much time fighting with them. I could not get good clear paint mixtures in my color wheels or anything that I was trying to paint. And um, they just didn't paint well. They were kind of milky. I know that some people can paint with extremely low quality art supplies. Not saying that these are super low quality, but I know people who can paint with just about anything and would shun me for blaming my tools for my bad art. But it really wasn't easy for me to paint with these. I found them difficult to move across the paper. And I assumed that it was my fault, that it was just frustrating um, because I, I felt like it was inaccessible and I didn't have the capacity to learn it. So I put it away. I didn't touch those watercolors for like two years. And uh, I think I was cleaning up to move and I found them. So I picked them up again and I was like, yep, these still suck. But I think that it's the paints. Like at that point, I kind of developed more self-confidence as an artist. I threw them away and went and picked up another brand it turned out they were also student grade paint, but they were much better. Still though, like even though they were better and I was getting better results from them, I still wasn't getting the same results that other artists I, I would watch on YouTube were getting, uh, even if I had been doing the same techniques. I started doing some research and I learned that there are two grades of paints. Um, this is probably common knowledge for pretty much everyone but uh, me when I started out. <laughs> Apparently, there there's a division between student-grade paints and artist-grade paints. And this would probably be a good time to mention like what goes into paints. And it uh, varies depending on whether you're using color or acrylic or oil. Paints will use um, a pigment. Um, sometimes they'll use a brightener, like transparent or white crystals. These wind up lightening the value. And that's something that a lot of student grade paints have, like um, instead of being a pure pigment, they will contain uh, white pigments um, or brighteners that give it kind of a, um, a higher opacity. In watercolor, especially refractive index is really important because a lot of watercolor artists want transparency. It gives, um, it allows light to come through the paint and it provides kind of a glow. And uh, you don't get this in student grade paints as much because of the brighteners that they add. They also contain binders, plasticizers, humectants um, to keep them um, moist, especially if you're using them in pans. Um, and then they contain fillers as well. Um, that's another big thing about student grade paints is they typically have cheaper fillers and a higher amount of fillers in the paint. They also contain like preservatives and um, other manufacturing additives and uh, typically water. And that's one thing about water uh, and pigment. Um, and that's actually what defines a pigment. Um, a pigment is um, a particulate, a solid that is insoluble in water and uh, typically physically and chemically unaffected by the water. So um, when I was using these student grade paints, I didn't realize 
like obviously I realized they were cheaper. So there had to be uh, something different about them. And usually that's the binder and the brighteners and overall the quality of the pigments. And another big thing is they, they typically uh, will use multiple pigments instead of single pigments. And if you look at the artist grade equivalent, usually those will only contain a single pigment or two pigments. And there's no telling what's in your student grade pigments. There's very little standardization. And any brand in any grade paint could be using a different pigment and the same colored name. Sorry, <laughs> could have probably been more. No, it's great. Uh, what I learned recently is that the at least the high quality paints usually have an indicator on the back of what pigments they contain. So again, back to that split primary system, those are all pure pigments. Those are not mixes. And that's help what makes the colors really bright and luminous and, and blend so well is that you're not, when you get that yuck, that purpley gray, it's probably because you're over mixing too many pigments. Now there's an intentional way to get, you know, you wanna get a weird plum or sort of a dark gray. I'm actually uh, doing some watercolor paintings based on the Fallout series of video games, and oh, cool! I there's a muddy look to a, a nuclear wasteland, so mm-hmm. it's you know I'm actually trying to make some of those really ugly colors, but uh, it it should be like I really being a good artist is really about control of your medium and understanding how to do things with intention. At least that's my my personal opinion. Yeah, I definitely don't disagree with that. I, I had a similar experience with watercolors. I used the good old Crayola stuff as a kid. And, you know, Crayola was one of the premier brands. If you had a nice box of Crayola crayons in grade school, apparently you were a big deal in Montana. Uh, but <laughs> but their watercolors, it's definitely student grade. And by student grade, I think that really means people under 12. I would even recommend that art students, if you can afford it, buy the artist grade because why why limit yourself? Especially since you really only need six colors. Maybe maybe you need a black, but it seems like you can get by with a limited palette and you don't... Yeah, Vata colors are expensive, but if you choose your colors carefully, you can make a little bit go a long way. And why not start with the best tools? Would you just have that Crayola set of like 12 colors you know, I'd paint something and it would just kind of cut them out muddy. And one of my, my grandma's next door neighbor was actually a professional watercolor painter. So she'd paint these really awesome scenes of Montana, like Canadian geese flying over a forest. And I was just stunned that you could get that amount of realism out of this medium where I just seemed to be getting solid shapes and like really <laughs> cartoon looking birds. And even as a child, I was like, this is really tough. How does Roberta, the artist I'm mentioning, her name was Roberta King, and I, I, I'm not sure if she's still making art in Montana, but she did a lot of nature watercolors, and they were really gorgeous. And my, she gave one to my grandma. I think she even painted some of the, there's a carousel built in Missoula, Montana, and she painted some of the horses, and it just had wonderful colors and great shading, and it just felt like there was an infinite void between what I was making with my Coriolas and what she was making. And some of that was lack of experience but some of that is your tools i mean her son was my age and he was painting awesome things this is so montana but he was like winning art contests painting ducks that's very <laughs> very montana to be painting wildlife and nature and stuff but it's great 
But yeah, it's super interesting. You don't think of all the fillers and um, even some of the good brands like Windsor and Newton, they sell some sets that if you don't look carefully, they're like Cotman colors. And the Cotman is actually the student gray. So you might think, oh, Mm -hmm. great, this is a great travel set. Well, it turns out that it's such a great deal because it's their it's their entry level. And Mm -hmm. I, I mean, maybe those are better than the Corella ones, probably, but yeah <laughs> i mean i don't know i definitely got some at the um well, let's just call it crafting for jesus there's a big box store in texas that's very religiously affiliated and they like crafting for jesus and i i went there years ago and um bought some cheap cheap paints and now i'm using them and just like they're just kind of like milky and like uh-huh. they're hard to clean out of my palettes even they kind of dry up in this weird stuff now I'm I'm loving 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 the Daniel Smith paints. Holy crap! Oh, they're my favorite. I still haven't tried Schmika. I um they're on my next to try list, but Daniel Smith is my absolute favorite. Schmika is the German word for makeup, so that's a funny. But you know, there's a lot of maybe that's a person's name. But Schmika. How's it spelled? S C H, M I N K E Schmika. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I studied German for like seven years so I'm conversational but I don't know just weird weird fun fact (laughs) that is a fun fact I want to talk a little bit about uh my printmaking background if I can because I well and maybe my textile background because I think watercolor is super awesome but there are different ways of mixing color so when I first was really mixing color as an artist and really getting to learn it was when I studied printmaking at Gonzaga and we'd have big tins of different colors and you know we have a magenta and we'd have uh, a number of blues and we had some yellows and we had black and then we had a tin of what we called fire red which was such oh I loved it that was the warm warm red that was kind of a fire truck red and you could mix that with the magenta so I started to kind of learn these things sort of by accident although we never had a color theory course in my college Uh, One thing I really learned with ink and color mixing is you really want to start with just a small amount. So if you want to, if you want to take a yellow and you want to make it more orange, and if you just take out a big hunk of, you use the palette. So, so printmaking inks, especially the oil-based, they're, they're typically an oil-based and they're bonded with uh, like linseed oil for, for um, intaglio etching, etching and relief. They're often bound with like linseed oil. For uh, lithography, they're bound with varnish. And this is why, as a 20-year-old art student, I would have, like, black spots on my arm from litho inks that, like, would not come out of my body for, like, two weeks because it was just varnish. It was, like, stuck to me forever. (laughs) Yes, I would bathe, but it was just, like, well, Macbeth situation there. Anyway. Oh, no, you know who you're talking to. I have paint all over me all the time. Yeah, that's why I like being an art student. I just had, like, ruined fingernails and, like, ink on my clothes. But it's fine. So anyway, back to color mixing. You want to make an orange. One, day 101, sloppy suit, you take half, you just scrape out a bunch of yellow, and you scrape out a bunch of the right orange, and you just mix them together, and you get something that's really heavy towards the, the red side because it's too much mm-hmm. pigment. And um, some of the pigments just overpower others. So what I learned is that you just want to take a touch. You want to start adding a little bit of the warmth, and then, and then keep in the small amounts and blend it until you really understand what proportions make the color you want, and then you make more ink. This is actually true in other in yeah, other mediums as well. I think, it, I think it definitely is, but it's so hard to br- to bring back. If you find your perfect orange is ten percent of the fire red and ninety percent of your yellow, 
and you need to correct that and you've got like an ounce of ink on the table now that you've really fucked up you need to suddenly start like <laughs> digging out jars and jars of ink and you're not going to be able to use that all so there's a point where you've mixed something wrong you just kind of need to throw it away and it's it's not great to waste pigment but you learn very quickly like just just work slowly work in small amounts just take a dab take a touch of the color and add it and, and understand what happens so you don't waste your materials because they're expensive and they're valuable and it's a limited resource. Going back to definitions, what you're referring to is called tenting strength. It um, basically oh, yeah, determines, it's the pigment load of the actual pigment, which determines mixing strength. So um, different different pigments will have different levels of tenting strength. And like you were saying, um, a red has a higher tenting strength than a yellow. So if you mix equal uh, amounts of red and yellow, the red is going to be stronger. Thank you for backing some science behind my, my personal <laughs> anecdote. That's absolutely what I experienced and sort of learned on my own, but it's nice to hear that clarified a little more. Funny enough, with, with fabric dyes, reds are also the really hot ones. That, at least the fiber reactive dyes that I use, the reds tend to go hot and they tend to just really grab onto that cellulose. My teachers always said, like, you know, be chill with red, maybe use it last. It's going to grab everything. <laughs> you know, there's a, a saturation points of fabrics and how much dye they can take of the different colors. And it's super interesting. Oh, another thing I yeah. really wanted to mention with mixing colors is reducing saturation. This is a thing I kind of learned through my oil painting classes and also a little bit through pink printmaking. But let's say you want a light pink. So you have your magenta. There's different ways you can get a light pink. You know, you have your pink and you can have... A transparent base that often certain mediums like printmaking acrylic will have transparent bases where you can lighten it in watercolor you just add more water that's water is your transparent base or you can add white pigment uh, white pigment tends to desaturate and make things really milky and cloudy and these are called tints and they could be super effective but they can also kind of have a washed out look so one of the things at least I learned a very unusual style of, of oil painting in art school. Traditional oil painters, from my understanding, will build up layers of color and it can take months. You'll just work slowly and add color to it. What we'd often do is we'd use a pure pigment and paint, and then we'd use a cotton rag to actually remove color and let the white of the canvas show through. And my teacher really emphasized to be very cautious about using white because it would reduce, maybe it's a tinting strength thing, I'm not sure, but it would actually pull that brightness and that transparency, that luminosity out and make things look kind of dull mm -hmm. and cloudy. And so the really successful paintings were from students who would wipe and remove color and let that white of the canvas really shine through that, that a thin glaze of oil paint. Yeah, there's a similar philosophy in watercolor. Um, you have a couple of things um, that you can do. One way to add a lot of depth to watercolor is to actually lift up paint, similarly to how you were doing it with oil paints. But uh, with oil, you can uh, actually scrape it off and you can get to the bottom of that canvas. Mm -hmm. Most of the time with watercolor, it's staining and tenting uh, the page. So you can like lift it up with cotton balls or paper towels. One of my favorite techniques. Another thing that you can do if you want to preserve the uh, white of your surface is uh, use something called masking fluid. I know Windsor and Newton make some. I have some right here. Let me pick it up. Yeah, mine is a uh, Windsor & Newton uh, masking fluid. Um, it's really cool. Um, it's a great way to get good, crisp, 
clean lines. Um, it's especially useful with like very painterly, uh, illustratorly styles. Mine is like green and it kind of dries white. So I rarely use it because I have such a hard time seeing where I've put it. But yeah, that, that's what you can do with watercolor to get the same effect. It's great for adding highlights to things because uh, you can go back over art with a white paint pen, but it's not totally the same. It doesn't have the same luminosity. I think we should talk a little bit about mixing grays too, because that's another another one that's not always intuitive. So most people recognize that you can mix a gray by mixing black and white in different shades, and that's definitely a way to get grays. However, you can mix complementary colors and make grays with a lot of character. What starts happening when you mix complementary colors is you're reducing the saturation and the brightness of the color and you're getting more muted versions of that color. Uh, but when you kind of get, there's a midpoint where you get a balance and it, it's neither one and it's kind of this neat gray. So grays can go kind of warm or grays can go kind of cool. And depending on what your artwork is going for, I mean, that can add really interesting mood and dimension that's so much richer than what you would get by just mixing black and white. And I think one of the common complaints about mixing black and white is that it kind of, it dulls the painting. Mm -hmm. One, like talking about warm versus cool grays, um, one example is in watercolor, where if you mix uh, burnt sienna, the pigment PBR7 with ultramarine blue, PB29, burnt sienna is a kind of a neutral to warm uh, orangey brown, like the UT orange. Ugh, I hate to bring that up. But, um <laughs> And uh, ultramarine is a warm-ish blue. And um, when you mix these, if you have, um, like, the closer you get when you're adding them in to um, a 50% mix is basically a uh, neutral gray. And then on either side of that, you start to get either warm or cooler, depending on how much brown or blue you have added. So that can make a really uh, beautiful blue. Um, with my Daniel Smiths, I have a pre-mixed gray that, um, well, it's pre-mixed in the sense that I made it. It's not a convenience gray. Um, it is a mixture of ultramarine blue and uh, goethite blue, which is a, uh, it's from their Primatech line. And it's very similar to burnt sienna, but it's made out of um, a mixture of probably burnt sienna and um, uh, goethite. So uh, that makes a really beautiful granulating gray. And I just, it's magical. I love using it. Yeah. So back to pigments a bit. A lot of these colors come from materials in the physical world, which is super interesting because historically, some of these colors were less available due to difference in science, difference in mining and, and geopolitical trade. Now we have all these wonderful colors available, but artists didn't always have the same color palette and you know so certain art stores even i think jerry's actually sells you know raw pigments some people want to like grind up compounds and make them and, and make them into pigments or inks and combine them um with binders for whatever medium whether it's an oil-based medium or a water-based medium but it's super interesting that there's a geology is coming into color theory again this is just i'm just scratching the surface i don't know a ton about this but i have also been playing with the primatech paints and some of those are just ground pigments and i, I watched a video from daniel smith and he was telling his story about how he bought this pigment grinder in seattle at a scrap sale for 500 bucks and he just started understanding and researching pigments and so then they showed a video of making their primatech where they take lapis lazuli 
a really beautiful blue stone that's mined in places like Afghanistan and they just kind of dumped it in this grinder and ground it up into powder and mixed it with binder and then stuck it in the little tubes and you get these paints they're literally ground crystals it sounds like the arrested mm-hmm. development diamond cream or something but I, I was just <laughs> giddy when I was painting I had the amethyst one and it literally sparkles because it's got a ground up amethyst and it was just so beautiful to be honest I think the amethyst also has a little bit of mica I've used the lapis lazuli and um, the thing about it is that it has horrible tinting strength it's a really beautiful color but I'm actually it's probably closest to cerulean Mm -hmm. in terms of the actual pigment color Tinting strength is very poor, so you're going to get a very desaturated kind of um, a very transparent color. It's still beautiful, but just keep that in mind when you're actually painting with it. Excellent point. It does seem like these are somewhat more of a little bit of a novelty color or, or maybe less less versatile in mixing, uh, but they can have really beautiful effects on their own. I didn't actually buy the lapis ones. I bought a couple like Rose of Ultramarine and Moon Glow, which I know you, you recommended. I think Rose of Ultramarine is just quinacridone rose mixed with ultramarine, but it's a really beautiful color. And it's great if you love to mix those colors to make purple, um, but you can also mix them if you just have quinacridone rose and um, ultramarine blue. Oh, dang. <laughs> yeah, it's worth having. I do. I've- I do, and I guess, but I, I'm really attached to that kind of <laughs> bluish purple, but thank you for telling me I bought something I already have. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. I mean, it's really, it's it's beautiful. If, if you're using a bunch of it, it's probably worth keeping both, to be honest. Oh, I'm going through a purple phase. Oh my gosh, purple is my favorite. I think the quinacridones are probably my favorite pigments from pretty much any supplier. And the quinacridone purples are like everybody has their convenience colors that they like to keep in their palettes. And I am really into convenience purples. So from the Primatech line, there's a purplerite, which is a very difficult word to say. Uh, and then there's amethyst um, and moonglow and shadow violet. And all of those are in the purple family. And they are just, oh, so magical. Oh, they make me feel like like a galaxy-treading uh, unicorn princess fairy <laughs> queen when I use them. It's just amazing. I'm also really addicted to their convenience greens. So, I mean, every artist has these convenience colors that they use. A lot of people like to keep it very simple and just mix their own colors. But I love, love, love having these. It's actually a symptom of my rainbow-itis, I think, where I just have the desire to collect, like, every single color. Because, um, like, going back to um, what we were saying about lapis lazuli, there are a lot of Primatech colors that are very similar to um, other pigments that they have in their line. Like, the uh, goethite is very similar to burnt sienna. But I just, I have both, and I can't help it. And for me, purples are definitely, definitely a huge part of my color palette. Yeah, I bought this really awesome purple. I think I actually bought one for you. So mm-hmm. I go to this tattoo shop in the Outer Sunset in San Francisco called Tuesday Tattoo. I've been working on a tattoo for a while. Uh, but, you know, I'm usually on painkillers trying to survive. And I check out, there's a really awesome coffee shop. And then there's this place called Case for Making. And it's like this tiny art store and they make their own watercolors. And I saw this lady making them one day, mixing them up, pouring them into the pans. And they had uh, some, they had this really awesome 
fluorescent violet that I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy this. This is fine. I didn't know a lot about watercolor at the time, but I totally bought it. But yeah, I was swatching it the other day and it's, it's fun and it's vibrant and it's really cool that it's from this little indie art store. I just thought that was really neat to get to watch someone mix pigments and that these little independent places are, are mixing their own watercolors and adding more options. But yeah, purple. I love it. <laughs> Same. Um, one thing that um, I love to do is go through, I have like a, I have a palette that holds like 48 half pans. Oh, nice. Or 24 full pans. And I, I went nuts buying all of the Daniel Smiths that I possibly could. I wound up buying almost all Prima Techs, um, wow. supplemented with important things like ultramarine blue and my beloved uh, quinacridones and buff titanium, which is what I often use for a base in my portraits. Mm -hmm. One thing I realized is that I really needed um, those primaries. I get really sucked into the romantic marketing behind uh, things like watercolors made out of crushed gemstones. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, there's a bit of the diamond cream factor to that. Yeah, so then I wind up buying, like, um, all of them, and then I'm like, okay, so the paintings that I'm making are uh, extremely sparkly now and <laughs> a little dull because they don't have the bright, vivid pigments. So I wound up having to buy a complete other set of, of watercolors from Daniel Smith. So word of warning, if you do indulge in the Prima text, be careful, do your research, try to separate yourself from the romantic marketing, unlike your dear host. Uh, <laughs> one good resource for this is actually handprint.com. A downside to handprint.com is that the website's a little obtuse, but um, it's basically a, a scientific reserve of a ton of information, almost all of the information that you could ever want about watercolor. Uh, it's written in a bit of a dry and scientific way, but there's so much there. Um, there's something for everyone. And I actually wound up um, writing. Can you hear my dog crinkling on paper yeah. right now? Molly, what are you doing? Molly's decided to make a bed there. I'm sorry. Come here. <laughs> this is great pod. Molly. This is the sound that our listeners love. <laughs> People are going to think that Daniel Smith is paying <laughs> We are not sponsored by anyone yet, but if you'd like to sponsor us... I... Daniel Smith, hit us up! If you'd like to send us samples, we will review them. <laughs> Let's see. There's, like, nothing left for me to buy. <laughs> oh, yeah, it sounds like you got quite the collection. I'm glad I, I yeah. started with this video that said, oh, get, you know, these colors, because then I can kind of... Uh, I, I have a focus, and now I'm slowly branching out. If you're looking to build a uh, watercolor palette or anything like that, we're going to have some resources on our blog. But yeah, on our I Could Make That blog, we will have some resources for uh, watercolor artists that help you build your own palette and experiment with different color wheels. I'm a huge proponent of, um, now that I've spent a billion dollars on Daniel Smith, um, ruthlessly culling your stash. Every few months, I go through my watercolor palette and I take stock of what I haven't been using. And I make a, um, a huge uh, painting where I just swatch all of the colors that I haven't been using and decide what needs to go. And I mean, I, I usually keep those. I just take the pans out and then I replace them with uh, something else later. But it's a really good way to make sure that you're using everything in your palette. You want everything in your palette to give you some sort of value. Right. I'm about to take my watercolors. 
traveling because I just quit my job a couple of weeks ago and I'm about to do a ton of travel, but I wanted to bring a set when I travel. And so I've got the small box that holds 24 half pans. And so I felt like that was the right size that I could get the colors I need, but I need to intentionally choose like which colors are going to be successful and help me mm-hmm. make my art, but also not be too heavy to drag around Asia and London and all the wild places I'm about to go. One cool option for traveling is um, the Peerless palette. Um, You technically have to build your own palette out of these. Uh, One of my favorite artists, Jane Davenport, introduced me to these. And I may have even talked about them before, but basically Peerless is um, a little over 100 years old now, and they started as a company who would tent black and white photographs, um, well, an ink company uh, to tent black and white photographs. And they sell watercolor um, dye-based pigments on these like little fabric-type sheets. And you can cut them out and glue them down onto uh, watercolor paper and make palettes. Like I have um, two palettes, one I carry in my traveler's notebook and one that I keep in my art studio for painting. And they are so convenient for traveling because all you need is like a paper towel and a water brush, which is a brush with um, a hollow tube to fill up with water and nylon bristles and just a few of those and the Peerless palette and you're good to go. Um, But they're highly transparent. So because they're dye-based pigments, so they won't give you um, any kind of opacity, uh, which is still a cool look and a lot of watercolor artists don't want to pass it anyway. So Cool. Sounds like a great tip. I think you were showing me those in your notebook. Those are the really flat little squares you'd cut out. Yeah. Yeah, that's so awesome because they... That would be like an everyday carry, like super light. Uh, you could just mm-hmm. take it with you. And um, yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, my palette's a little bit larger. I got this one from this German company called Lucas. And I'm filling, uh, the, I bought some empty pans that I'm filling with my Daniel Smith stuff. And I'm going to stick them. That's the one I use too. The yeah. Lucas palette is really good. It looks pretty um, sturdy. It's basically, it is, yeah. Um, it's basically for people at home. It's basically just a, um, a metal pan. Um, with a, uh, depending on the size that you get, it folds open to have, um, a lid that you can mix your paints in and then, um, rows that you can put your pans in either half pans or full pans. I need to paint mine. You can actually cover, like, I think that they all come in black and I really want something brighter. So you can actually cover them in gesso, um, prep them with gesso and then cover them in acrylic paint. So I think that's what I want to do with mine because it, it's so black and bland it just doesn't have any personality yeah i was gonna put some stickers on mine oh that's a good idea too i have a lot of cool stickers i'm just here here's this asmr sound of me opening mine and running my fingers over the little there's like little wells it just seemed like a really nice uh economical design uh that i could fit in a travel bag and bring on all my wonderful adventures that i'm having because i'm taking time off to study textile arts and take a little tech sabbatical get into my artist self so your background noise is asmr-esque but molly stamping on some gift wrap paper is noise (laughs) i see i see how it is molly you're unappreciated here molly oh and she's a dachshund so she's got those sad eyes will you tell us what color the gift wrap is and then we can make it part of the episode like if you what color is that gift wrap then we can make it all clean Um, it is a white gift wrap with little um it's a pattern full of hearts uh laid out horizontally on the gift wrap there's a gold which is technically not a color but more of a texture um there's a bright saturated pink a desaturated cooler pink 
um, and a uh, kind of a mint turquoisey color and a black, which is a uh, value. Chair, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, thank you to all the animals a part of the show. My cat Ramona is currently laying on an open book called um, what is it? I can't even read the title. It's the Itten book on color, and she's laying on the twelve colored color star, which might be a good segue. I'd, I'd like to at least name drop a little uh, famous color historians. Um, I think that's an interesting thing that there were people that studied color, uh, such as Johannes Itten. The German poet and author Johann Wolfgang von Goethe actually studied a lot of color theory, and our famous scientist friend Isaac Newton. So it's interesting that, you know, when you ask people about the rainbow, a lot of people have learned Roy G. Biv. And I was reading a little bit about Isaac Newton last week in preparation for this episode, and it turns out that he liked the number seven a lot. Mm -hmm. He wanted to... He had this theory that there was some analogy between colors and sounds, and the musical scales have seven notes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so he broke the visible spectrum into seven colors, and that's what we call our rainbow. But really, it's an arbitrary amount of colors. Itten has made it this 12-point color store, so he picked uh, 12 as the number of colors, and, and Goethe was working on a color wheel with six colors, and they had different theories, but... It's basically a mapping of these human theories onto the visible spectrum. So there's not anything inherent about seven colors in the rainbow. Sorry, indigo, uh, but it's Aww. just a dark blue. It is a beautiful color, uh, but you could imagine another culture and other people that might have assigned eight or nine or ten, depending on what number of colors was significant for them and what... I think some of it always comes back to what the eye detects. Like, there's going to be a minimum of three because the eye detects three. Uh, we'll post some charts of the, mm -hmm. the rod. I'm sorry, the cone sensitivities of the eye. But it's super interesting. There's a ton of history in color, too, that these, these people theorized what color could be and how it's represented. Yeah. Uh, so for anyone who's been play, paying close attention, you get extra brownie points if you noticed that we've been discussing the Daniel Smith Primatech colored goethite. And uh, we're also talking about, um, historically, uh, Johann von, you're way better at pronouncing this than me, but oh, yeah. goethe. goethe. Yeah. Yeah, I, so. I was a German minor, so uh, I know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> He's a, like, you have to learn his stuff if you study German literature. It's funny that you say minor because you mean M-I-N-O-R, but I'm about to use the homophone minor because oh. Goethe had one of the largest collections of minerals um, ever. He uh, was really into geology and he was um, a great color theorist. Um, so I'm not actually sure like if he discovered Goethe or what was the deal with that, but um, that mineral is named after him. Oh, super awesome. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Oh, cool. Oh, my God. I had I had history about Goethe that you didn't know. That's no, I, I mean, I mostly know about him because in high school German classes, we'd have to memorize poems. And in college, I took a German literature class as part of my German minor. And, you know, we talked about different poets and authors. And, and then because I studied some color theory, I took this really awesome course with Jane Dunnewald. We'll put a link that really, it was an online course and I practiced painting different, you know, tints, tones, shades, mixing colors, 
started to read more and realize, oh, this guy is such a polymath. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to name that there's like a, a bunch of history around color theory and I have my book open. I was reading it earlier and now my cat is sleeping on it. So great segue. <laughs> pet supporters. I this all started because of the cats. Well, you know, I think it was a great transition. And everything comes back down to cats. Yeah, I'll cats take a picture of the blog of the cat sleeping on the art history book. Uh, but yeah, it's super cool. There's a lot of great online tools for mixing colors. Um, I'm sorry, online resources for learning about mixing colors. I think learning color theory on a computer is difficult. I uh, I did take an online color theory course on Skillshare that I didn't find super useful. I, I think maybe the one thing I learned was about you can blend colors in Adobe Illustrator and I'll link a tutorial to do that on that, which is nice because when you pick colors in a color scheme that have similarities or that are close together, it can make a more successful composition. But I think really mm-hmm. to understand color theory, you need to log off, you need to sit down, you need to work with physical pigments or, or actual light and not a computer's reputation because again computers can't even represent the full spectrum Uh, Mm -hmm. the screens most screens are just not optimized to do that and it's fine Um, I think that um, that's a good transition into uh, what we are going to talk about in our blog and we'll go over it uh, very briefly here but this is a a long kind of exercise that we want to pose to everyone Um, this is an exercise that I do um, and I think a lot of experienced artists may may already have something set up like this. So this is more for uh, beginners or, or people who haven't done a lot of color work. Um, get a large art journal. Um, I like the Strathmore Hardbound Watercolor Journal. It's like 11 by 14. And it can pretty much stand up to any media you can throw at it. Um, you can also make your own journals by binding loose watercolor paper. Um Basically, uh, what you want to do is explore creating color, um, color wheels and charts with all of your supplies. This is going to be a great way to get to know your supplies and uh, your favorite color combinations. Um, try making color wheels using uh, unique colors in your collection for each color. Then try blending um, to make your secondaries. And try as many combinations as possible. Do this with all of your art supplies, not just um, mixable paints like watercolor, oil, and acrylic, but try it with, um, water-soluble markers, pastels, um, alcohol markers, colored pencils. Yeah. Uh, just remember that if you're using pastels, uh, use a fixative on your journal or it'll <laughs> get on the next page. Oh, and if you're using oil, use like a water-based, um, fixative or, or varnish. Um, and then try mixing in different mediums. This is one thing that I love to do. Um, Get uh, white gesso, transparent gesso, black gesso. Um, try putting these on on these different um, mediums. You can even use like fiber paste and watercolor ground uh, gel medium to see what happens when you put paint on it. It's a really great way to explore both color and texture at the same time. Um, and it's a really good way to develop your own style. Um, we'll have more instructions. There are more things that you can do with it. Um, And we'll have that up in our blog by uh, this weekend. With textile arts, you can do the same sort of thing, even if you're not physically manipulating paper or a canvas. I spend a lot of time dyeing different colors or mixing different colors and um, then cutting out little swatches of the fabric and using glue stick. And I have a binder full of all my 
Procyon fiber reactive dye mixes. And it's really helpful because when you're trying to pick color for a costume or you have a custom order, like I've, I've worked with people, I can point them to what exact color they're going to get. And yeah, it just really understanding your tools and, and what it gets. It's not, it's not just limited to painters. I, I sometimes feel the art world can be a little paint painting centric and want to acknowledge <laughs> that this is any medium that uses color, you can you can do some sort of swatch. Yeah, yeah. Another tip for that is like similarly similarly to using grounds, try different types of fibers. Um, try different types of techniques. Like, um, it's, you know you can mix the dyes together, or you can uh, do like separate dyeing yeah, techniques. Yeah, over dyeing. You dye it once and then over dye. Um, you can do uh, separate dyes and then blend um, fibers and fabrics together, like hand carding them together, uh, where each individual uh, fiber is still its own original color if you look closely, but it has the illusion of being the new secondary color. Yeah. You can also just take your dyes and mix them with water and, and put them on paper. It'll resemble dye and it'll be pretty desaturated, but it's a good way to get an idea of the underlying pigments in the dye and to see what it looks like against white. Yeah, they will bond. Uh, if the Procyon dyes and different dyes will bind differently to different materials. So what you get on cotton and linen is different than what you get on silk. Well, even I think linen takes the most pigment and silk takes the least of the three fibers I just mentioned. So it's good to swatch on your different materials to really understand how the color works. And if you're using uh, dyes for organic material like wool, um, try different types of wool. Try different wool blends. Try um, blends of organic and um, cellulose-based, not that cellulose isn't organic, but cellulose-based fibers, like a blend, or even a blend of like nylon and wool, just see how uh, different dyes react and um, change the way your fiber looks. Yeah, nylon's interesting. I've been dyeing some nylon. It's a thirsty beast. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It just, sorry, that sounds weird, but it just, it really soaks up the dye in kind of weird, unexpected ways and different ways than the wool would. So I, I've made some things that came out a little different color than I expected. That's okay. Yeah, nylon is really interesting. Um, I think it, it tends to be more vivid and, and brighter and make them just like look super, super saturated. I didn't use much of my purple pop at all. And it came out my, like I dyed some gloves cause I'm trying to practice dyeing like burlesque apparel and stuff so I had some Ooh. satin gloves that are really awesome and yeah they came out kind of a dark purple with some kind of oh, modulation just... and it's it's okay it's it's not the original color I intended this is why I should have probably swatch tested I should have bought a little scrap from Joanne's first but I just went for it and came out a little darker than I expected yeah that will happen so yeah we will have all of these tips and tricks for um both um uh, paper and surface-based art and fiber arts and dyeing for everyone on our blog. Um, we, I will probably even wind up posting some of my color wheels and charts and uh, some of my beautiful complex grays uh, that I mix, um, as well as tips for keeping your swatches organized. They don't need to be neat, but it is so painful when you mix just the most beautiful color and then you cannot remember what you used. So we'll be posting tips along those lines as well.
thing that we've been uh, tossing around is the idea of having a segment at the end of every episode where we talk about what we've been working on or uh, whose art is making us really happy. Um, we don't have anything like that this week, uh, so I think um, it'd be a good idea to talk about our favorite colors and what color combinations make us really happy. And do you have anything like that? Yeah, I want to talk about my favorite color. It's been a big part of my life in the last few years. And um, it's this kind of, I'm calling it tourmaline green. Um, it was funny. About three years ago, I broke up with my ex and I was getting my own place. And I I was looking through Pinterest as kind of a tool. And I have this filter on my computer screen that blocks blue light. And it's it adds a little bit of a yellowish tint because it's reducing the blue. So uh -huh. I was looking at all this stuff and I was just pinning all this stuff and this green was just really speaking to me. And I was like, oh my God, I gotta do this. It's the kind of dark turquoise blue that it doesn't show up super well on a computer, but just everything was clicking. I just was like this, 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 okay, this is great. And I found the swatch at Lowe's that was this color and it was just so resonating with, with myself. Uh, it turns out the next day when I woke up, F.Lux, the, the blue light filter had reset and all the things I pinned were like different shades of blue that had actually <laughs> been cast in a yellow. So it was like, oh, maybe this stuff is actually not the right color. Again, warning tale of why you can't trust your computer. But until mm -hmm. that color really was resonating with me. And I found this color called stained glass is part of the Valspar range of paints and it's just the perfect blue green and I painted my bedroom that color and I decorated in this Hollywood Regency fashion and on my 30th birthday there was a gemstone show in Austin and I bought myself this nice uh, tourmaline stone that was that exact color and I took Jane Dunnewald's color theory class and funny thing one of her she has a set of 12 primary secondaries and tertiaries and one of those was actually the Valspar stained glass swatch that she had as the kind of color constant card. And yeah, it just kept speaking to me. It kept popping up in different ways. Uh, it was a color that looked really beautiful against my complexion on clothing because I have red hair and the complement of that blue green is a red mm -hmm. orange and that's close to the color of my hair. So I actually did a burlesque routine uh, with this costume that I bought a lot of the things of that color when I was traveling in Manhattan last year. And it's actually a hard color to find it at fabric stores. Like Joanne's doesn't always carry it, but specialty fabric stores, like if you go to the garment district in Manhattan, it's everywhere. <laughs> so I bought a lot of fun rhinestones and different things and made this really beautiful costume. I had a little help from a costuming friend. I don't know, that color has just somehow aligned with this stuff going on in my life. It's, it's funny, I just want to buy it in every representation. So while I... My rainbow-itis is maybe more single-minded where I'm like, I want to buy everything I find in this single color and then make it. Although I'd say in 2017, I've shifted a little bit more into doing things with purple. But yeah, greens have always been a favorite of mine. And then this particular color really speaks to me. So that's a little bit of my story. How about you? Interesting. No, that's a really beautiful story, actually. Thank you for sharing that. And it's a gorgeous color. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I would say that teal is probably one of my favorite colors in general, pretty much uh -huh. every variation that you can get of teal. Um, one of my favorite gemstones is labradorite because it oh, has that cool kind one. of, yeah, it has, it's um, a feldspar mineral similar to spe spectrolite and it's a more popular sister moonstone. Um, but it uh, often flashes teal and violet and gold, although some are um, more um, autumnal colors like 
orange and gold and red and green. Um, but I'd say my favorite watercolor is probably Moon Glow by Daniel Smith. It's actually not one of the Prima Tech colors, but it is one of the more granulating colors in Daniel Smith's entire catalog. It's comprised of three different pigments. Um, one is like a red pigment, one is a blue pigment, and one is a green pigment. And what you wind up getting is this like kind of plummy purple color that granulates with these deep blues and um, it kind of separates out into like orange and mauve and blue and oh it just looks like a cloud of magical dark beautiful <laughs> love sorry I get this is why I get like so suckered into the romantic marketing like it just kind of like it puts me to this kind of like fever dream <laughs> the colors really speak to us in big ways though I think it's awesome yeah, they're they're so evocative, and Moonglow is amazing for creating like night skies and um, lots of texture on the paper and shadows in the skin on portraits. And because it's using blue, green, and uh, red, um, we could be more precise about the pigments, but that's probably not super interesting. You can look it up on their site. Um, yeah. This goes back to what we were saying about rose of ultramarine. They combine uh, quinacridone rose with ultramarine, and what you get when we say granulating is um, this effect where some of the pigments settle into the texture of the paper and it creates um, this very textural, uh, beautiful separation um, where you're seeing multiple colors within a pigment and using granulation in your work can really provide um, like a type of energy and um, texture and mood to the piece that wouldn't be there just with like completely transparent colors and they both definitely have their place but I'm a major texture fiend so moon glow is just uh so magical yeah it seems like a really it really has a lot of depth I've played with it a bit it seems really like an awesome shadowy color it is and it has a similar color called shadow violet which I think has a little bit more orange in it and okay blue and like even though uh swatches of it look very similar um earlier I was just thinking oh my gosh I'm so lucky that one of my cats has not tried to climb on my laptop and interrupt us and look who's made an appearance oh boy Trouble. hi they love to get um, on the laptop it's, it's like warm dude, and I know if we get disconnected I'm so sorry because truffles all up in my business and I still uh, you're breaking up is, is oh, the cat shit. on the mic of course she's because it just sounds mic. like you're speaking through a, a rectangle or something, like a, a, a square wave <laughs> generator. Is she better? Is this better? Yeah, that's that's clear again. I had to kick her off. Sorry, Truffs. You can sit on something else, like like a color theory textbook. How about... <laughs> I think Truffle is just our podcast cat. Our podcast. Because this is, I think, the second or third time she's interrupted us. Yeah, well, you know, it's good to have returning guests. Mm -hmm. And she's so fluffy. Um, so yeah, anyway, those are my two, uh, favorite watercolors by Daniel Smith. Not necessarily my favorite, favorite colors in the whole wide world, but they definitely make me happy. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, I guess let's, uh, do our sign off. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us for this color theory episode of I Could Make That. Um, we are so grateful that you're, if you, if you listen this far, uh, we're grateful for our audience and please review us on iTunes and check out our blog. It's at icouldmakethat.wordpress.com. Keep on making. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.